self-acceptance is key. This is who I am. This is the journey that I've been on. The things that have led to the things that have happened, I can't change. I'm not going to sit here and say I don't have BDD anymore, that I'm not going to be obsessive about certain things. That pressure is off. And now I'm accepting, I do feel that there's a sigh of relief that I'm open to the imperfections, I'm open to the trauma that's got me here and actually I can move on and the future can be bright. Welcome to the Hurt to Healing podcast with me, Pandora Morris. I've been fighting an uphill battle with my mental health for many years and it's only now that I've started to see some glimmers of light. As part of my own recovery, I've made it my mission to support as many of you as possible on your own healing journey by sharing conversations that are more honest and more raw than ever before. I'll be speaking to some wonderful people from all walks of life who will open up about their own invisible struggles in the hope that it will provide a bit of solace and comfort for some of you. The Hurt to Healing podcast is proud to partner with Shout, the UK's first free, confidential, 24-7 tech support service. So if you're struggling to cope and need mental health support, please text SHOUT, S-H-O-U-T, to 85258. If you're a big fan of reality TV, some of you might be familiar with my next guest. Charlie King was once famed for his role on The Only Way is Essex and known best for his very dramatic relationship with the one and only Gemma Collins. The series followed his attempts to become more of a man as he started changing what he wore and how he spoke in a bid to fit in. He then had a brief departure from the show during which time he came out as being gay. Since leaving the show in 2015, he has struggled with both depression and body dysmorphic disorder. The pandemic was a challenging time for all of us, and Charlie admits that psychologically he was not in a good place, which led him to get surgery on his nose. Charlie now uses his platform to call for mental health awareness on this issue, and I'm so glad to be able to get the chance to talk to him about it today. I'd love to start by asking if you remember when you first started to feel insecure about your appearance. I think I speak for everyone. As we grow up, there's always this awkward time in your life when obviously you're going from being a youngster through your adolescence into then adulthood where things aren't great. You're trying to find yourself, your body's doing what it needs to do, and you can either be really lucky and be one of those good-looking kids at school, I say, or you can be someone like myself that used to be a little bit out of proportion to the point where I used to get called monkey. I used to literally be called Monk. And it was because I had a very round face, big ears, and quite a round nose. And I was out of proportion and I didn't look the best. I had no shape. I wasn't an athletic boy at school. I kept myself to myself. And I used to think I was quite ugly. It didn't really bother me, to be honest, because I used to just do school, get home, forget school. That was my vibe because it just wasn't my place. But It did used to play on me sometimes that I wasn't one of the good-looking slash popular kids, which definitely must have been a a seed planted, but I didn't realise at the time. And then as I progressed into late adolescence, going to college, 
finding myself a little bit being inspired by the things that I used to like, which was like NSYNC, Justin Timberlake. Yeah, S Club 7. Yeah, the guys in that. Blue, Blue were huge. Boyzone. They used to have like their baggy jeans on and a little bit of a quiff in the hairstyle. And I used to start experimenting a little bit with my look and start feeling myself a little bit more. And I felt that I was coming into my own, which was great. But never overly confident, confident. But I just went, I went along with it. I understood that my time would probably come, that I would really feel confident. That's what I hoped. And then when I embarked on my early 20s, I had my own business. And that literally threw me into seven days a week, zero interest in my appearance, zero interest in how I looked because the business was my focus. And so I didn't take much notice. But I realized that some people would say, oh, you're a really nice looking guy. Um, You're a handsome boy, Charlie. And I'd be like, oh, thank you. (laughs) You know, I wasn't dating. I wasn't in relationships. So I wasn't hanging out with friends. I literally just worked, went home, worked, went home. But it was when TOWIE came, The Only Way is Essex, which obviously was the reality show of the moment 10 years ago, which was about the beautiful people of Essex and their fantastic lifestyles. The A, Essex started becoming quite known for its image. And then when I got the opportunity to go on the show, which was obviously so random and so alien to anything that I was and what my life was all about, the first thing that comes to mind is, Firstly, am I good looking enough for this show that's portraying the good looking people of Essex? And that's when I started really questioning myself. And when the producers of the show were interested in me, there started a bit of a pressure or I'm going to be getting this opportunity, it seems, and I need to make sure that I'm like the other guys on the show. And at the time it was Mark Wright, Mario, Joey Essex, all really handsome guys, the hair, the bodies, the tan, the teeth. And I felt a million miles away from that. So the seed was then planted, up your game. When did you realise, do you think that it was a problem? Was that during your time in, spent filming in TOWIE or was that earlier? I've spent a lot of time reflecting mm. recently and trying to understand where it went wrong to an extent or where there could have been triggers that I didn't realise. And it does stem back to school. I spoke in Parliament earlier this year And one of the biggest things I said to the health committee was we need to get into schools Mm -hmm. because bullying damages people far more than you realise at the time. And unfortunately, I had a lot of bullying come my way for whatever reason. But it definitely made me very sensitive and a shell of the person that I probably could have been, even as I sit here today. It zapped something from me for sure. And so I think that's why I quite liked the idea of always just disappearing home or being in my bubble of work and not really putting myself through any undue pressure when it came to dating, socialising or trying to be anything like with an image or or a physique or whatever. But I trust that when The Only Way is Essex came my way, it was definitely a, a time in my life where I was like, no, I need to address some things and I want to go and see what the world's about and I want to get this opportunity that could be incredible for me. But it did bring back some of those childhood triggers, which was going back into an environment which was very competitive. Everyone was fighting for the popularity. Everyone wanted to have the storylines on the show. Everyone wanted the followers. At the time, Twitter was blowing up. 
And then everyone wanted the endorsements, the opportunity outside the show. And then if that person got it and you didn't get it, there started this insecurity, which became a theme from, mm. from there. So I don't want to blame the show as such, mm. but it definitely took me back into an environment which was quite tricky to handle, especially mm. when you've just gone from being a very regular person to being on one of the, at the time, the biggest reality TV show that everyone was talking about. You're juggling a lot. And that was a lot on my mental health without me realizing. So when did you go and seek help? And when were you diagnosed with BDD, body dysmorphic disorder? So it came in, in waves because when career stuff was going well, I was feeling quite self-assured. And I thought, you know, I'm, I was getting castings. I was busy. I was making money. I had the opportunity to work for Men's Health magazine and do a shoot with them, which was a game changer for me in the sense of understanding what exercise and fitness can do for you. Being given that opportunity to be in one of the biggest fitness magazines going, being given everything to make you transform in the best way, best trainers, nutrition, supplements. It was like the stuff that dreams were made of. But in my own private life, I was still struggling with my sexuality, mm. which was a whole nother thing that I had to be figuring out. And at the time I kept thinking I was asexual. I just didn't have the feelings for anyone or going back to earlier years. I thought, no, I've just never really been into anyone. So I'm not this, I'm not that. I don't believe in labels. Mm. Don't really know where to put myself. But in the meantime, I would just keep going. That was it. But um, with the BDD and, and where that started coming into play wasn't until later down the line when I had uh, solidified myself, if you like, as a fitness coach, transformed my body, got known for a certain thing. And then the, the fun of that wore off because it became a pressure. And this is one thing that I've realized in, in this reflection that I've been doing recently is that when something stops being enjoyable for me or something stops being an organic experience that was a release, that was fun, that has a pressure on it, whether it's you've got to deliver this content because you've got to keep your social media up to keep people engaged. That in itself is a pressure for me because I don't really like living my life like that. I always lived by my life goes on outside of social media. Mm -hmm. And then the social media would just be a reflection of what I'm doing in my real life. But when the social media starts becoming your real life and you're obsessing about how you're looking, what the other person's doing, it goes back into this cycle again. Back to the Towie days, back to the school days. Here we go again. I'm looking at who's doing really well right now. What am I missing? What am I being told I'm missing? You should see this person's profile, see what they're doing, do that. And you can get like totally overwhelmed with it all. And it goes back to that comparison angle, which is a dangerous one for me because it brings back those those feelings of younger life when I was like, I just don't feel good enough. I don't feel accepted. I'm different. This is hard work. And it's even harder work putting on the act. I want to go back to something that you said, which I think is really interesting, which is when, when you take the enjoyment out of something and it becomes more ritualized, you start to question it. And I think in recovery, you start to realize that actually those things don't serve you because when you're in the midst of for me, it would be a compulsive episode, right? So I know that as soon as my routine gets really locked in and really entrenched, which it very often does, 
it's really, really hard to change that. So how did you start to implement that change in your life and get some more enjoyment out of it rather than feeling shackled to something else? I think pre to me coming out and identifying as a gay male, Mm -hmm. obviously the the more compulsive or the obsessive side of things was definitely a way of me hiding from the world, hiding from myself and busying myself in a way which meant there was always an excuse not to address other things. I was crazy about gardening and this makes me laugh, but I was obsessed with the lawn and making the lines in the lawn to the point where we had a house in Spain and my mum and stepdad used to go over there for the whole summer and I would go back and forth. It got to the point where I wouldn't even go to Spain because I was so worried about the grass losing its definition. And that's when I knew that there was bad habits there and I had to try and curb it a little bit or try and find a way around it. And so I would, within my own self, and I give myself credit for that, make sure I do go away. I would try and break the cycle when something was starting to become again not enjoyable my gardening wasn't enjoyable anymore because I was like oh my god I'm obsessed about the grass and it's now turning into be something that I wake up in the morning thinking about and it's so silly but at the time it was so important to me so I think breaking the cycle was something that I had to do I did do but I did it through like gritted teeth and I did it almost like being forced to do things and that became a bit of a repeating thing as time went on as well But truthfully, they were the reasons why I was hiding from the big world because I wasn't really happy within myself. So even though I was this TOWIE star or reality TV star, people didn't really know the real me because the real me hadn't really come out yet. So when I came out at the age of 29, which is quite late, life really began then and I found very quickly love. And when I experienced the love of another person and I got to share things that I'd never shared before, grow up in a way that I'd never experienced before I understood life a little bit more and I thought that this was the reason why I'd gone through everything I'd gone through in the years prior it just happened that this is my story and it was a little bit later on down the line it's been quite tricky but I'm set now this was what all these issues were Mm. I was bullied at school because probably people could pick up I was different and then I didn't know what I was but then when I met this person and I fell for them it was that eureka moment of, okay, I, I know what I am. And as soon as I knew what I was, I went on this morning and I said it. And that was a great relief for me because I was like, I can finally just sit there at 29, be totally transparent, explain that it wasn't an easy journey to get there. I didn't lie on The Only Ways Essex. I'd never been with a guy before. I'd never experienced anything sexual with a man. I just genuinely didn't know who I was. So, Charlie, I want to like, get into the detail of your body dysmorphia. Because yes. a lot of people with BDD tend to focus on particular body parts or areas and obsess over them. Was that a symptom of your BDD or did it manifest in a more generalized way? So with, with the fitness side of things, the gym was originally my sanctuary. It was my place of escape and I loved it because I could be amongst people. But even though I wasn't really interacting with people, I, I observed And I enjoyed what it was doing for me and the changes that it was bringing. But with the men's health thing, that was great. But because I then also had a public profile on it and people were responding to an image and they were so impressed. And I was impressed to be fair. I couldn't believe what I'd done in eight weeks, whatever it was. Bear in mind, though, it was all I did for eight weeks. 
people forgot that. You know, you could not achieve that if you're running a regular life. I wasn't. But I sensed the accolade and the ego boost that it gave me. And for the first time, I actually started feeling like, oh, I'm something. I, I feel good. And it was then a great foundation for me to want to continue on my fitness, getting my body even better until it became obsessive, which it took a while to get there. But then bigorexia became quite apparent because in my nature of things, it goes from that point of being something I enjoyed, something that was serving me in a positive way to then something that I'm starting to get a niggle, but I'm going to keep training because I can't miss that training day. And there it starts because if something took me out of that routine or I couldn't train my shoulders that day, all of a sudden I felt like I'd lost the size on my shoulders, didn't want to wear that t-shirt if I was going out. And you start being very critical on yourself to the point where I'd be like, well, I'm not going out then. So the gym and, and that side of things was definitely the first part of that. But then I was given these opportunities to be front cover of magazines. So I was front cover of GT magazine, Attitude magazine, that was all like in my underwear, in the sports gear. I was the Gay Times' fitness editor at the time. I was going all over the place, trying every fitness class under the sun, every supplement, being given everything, photo shoots every six weeks. So that's all I, I did. But I had to stay of a certain way in order to perform the way that I wanted to. The pressure was on, on, on. I was injuring myself to the point where I had to have shoulder surgery and it was when I had the surgery and then I had to stop because you know what it's like. You have to, Charlie, you cannot do anything for six weeks minimum. Then you're like, oh God. And so I got very fearful and upset about my physique and I couldn't do my job properly. And I, I just became very upset and angry. And I'd realized as well that I was on this machine. And I couldn't really uh, find a way out of it. Like, it wasn't enjoyable anymore, but equally I'd set the tone and I'd set the bar quite high. So I think the bigorexia was the first part of the BDD, but I thought it was because of just my career pressures and people really do have pressures in their job. No one's void of it. And so I had to try and rebuild a healthier relationship when I was rehabbing rehabilitation, physio and everything. And it was a moment for me to understand that I'd been doing too much. But that was quite tricky because then I never really feel like I got my body back after that, to be honest. And so then I carried on for a bit and I think it wasn't much long after that that we went into the pandemic. And unfortunately, it just spiralled. It went beyond more than just my physique. It became my face. And I was just convinced that I needed to have surgery because the one thing that I'd always had a bit of an insecurity about was my nose from back being called monkey with a round nose. Being Jewish, we used to always get like, I got bullied for being Jewish and there was always this thing about noses and Jewish people. And um, it was broken when I was about 18, just randomly. It was just wrong place, wrong time. And when I would do my camera stuff and I'd really be very self-critical because I'm a perfectionist, want to look the best. I always looked at the greats. I could always see this dent. Went to see a dermatologist who said, see that dent in your nose, which brought it right to the forefront. <laughs> you just can't believe it, can you? Uh, they said, we can put some filler in that. 
And basically, that's when the seed of the face started because I'd gone for a facial. They saw this dent, bit of filler, refine it, lovely job. And I was like, do it, do it, because I hate that thing. I'm always at angles. I've got my best side. If I could go to camera straight on or if I can be smoldering in the way that I want to, then great. I haven't ever been able to do that. They put the bloody filler in and it was a disaster. It blew the nose went massive. It was done via a cannula. It was cheap filler, apparently. It cost me a thousand pounds to have it dissolved. But what did it do? It opened a floodgate like you would never because I became obsessed. Because I walked out of that Harley Street clinic thinking, what have I done? I had to cover my face and wait for it to be dissolved. But it never really went back down. So now all of a sudden, I feel like I've got a bigger nose than what I had at the beginning because of my nature as a person. The thing that I thought it was going to fix it has made it worse. And that was literally the Christmas time before the pandemic hit in the new year. And so when we all went into that crazy time, I was living on my own. I was living up here in London. I had this idea that I was going to rebuild myself and you know try again. But during that time of being on my own, stuck to my phone, being within my own thoughts, obsessing about things, I just couldn't get this thing out of my face. Like when I kept looking in the mirror, I kept thinking, this looks awful. Like I kept taking selfies, I kept taking pictures. I started playing around with face tuning. And then I was like, I'm, I'm going to have a nose surgery. And that led me to when we first came out of that first lockdown, the first thing I did was call up a surgeon that I know had done a few of my friends from the Towie days, go and see him. The first thing he looked at me and said, we can improve your nose. 100%. And that was music to my ears. And it was like, okay, yes, I, I, we've been in this hell for the last however many months, fed up feeling the way that I feel. This is the answer to everything. And um, yeah, I went ahead and I had the surgery and it was a disaster. Did the bodily or the bigorexia, as you refer to it, I think you can also say muscle dysmorphia, did that slightly allay when you were going through this obsession with your nose? What was going on with the working out? Was that still ongoing or was that did that quieten when the nose was the sort of focus? I think lockdown had its perks for me in the sense of it took the pressure off because you couldn't go to the gym and we only had what we had within our homes and we were all doing those bloody bait beam workouts. And so I had what I had within my flat and I would every day like to exercise. You couldn't not go a day without doing something in my living room and then I would just put my phone on and record it and post it and I did that every day and it became a something to keep me occupied it was motivation and I understood as well that I was not going to have that big pump as such because we're working with little weights and and tins of beans so it kind of worked for me in a way because it removed the pressure but I could still do something that would help people potentially so that did subside for sure and then when obviously I agreed to have the nose done that was also like, I'm going to relieve the pressure of the the body because I'm going to get the nose done. I'm going to go on holiday after that. And then I'm going to maybe go to one of these boot camps or do something out in Ibiza. And I'm going to come back and there it will all start the rebirth. This was my way of thinking. No, well, it's really interesting. I think the way that we're wired is such that we always are looking for escape routes. It's sort of, oh, right, well, I'll sit through this discomfort knowing that actually I've got this whole plan as to how I'm going to get myself back to where I actually really want to, even though you know it's not healthy and you know it's not really the right way to go. 
And I think it's until you have that mental shift where you're like, actually, I realize that I can't have a life by being that super skinny version of me or the one who works out for hours and hours. It's that crucial moment where you actually, you're like in limbo and you're like, no, I'm going to go engage my wise mind and I'm going to take the route that I know takes me towards recovery and, and a happy, fulfilled life, even though it feels worse at the moment. Yeah, I hear you. I had that mentality of the that that thing will fix that thing and then it's going to come back and I'm fixed. But obviously, when I went to see that surgeon or even when I went to see that dermatologist, A, I'm going into a bit of a lion's den. I've taken myself there, hands up to that. But equally, I feel like there has to be this duty of care when you walk through the door there has to be a bit more of an understanding as to why that person's coming through the door. When that surgeon specifically said to me, we could achieve it, you know, I was sold a dream. Yes, I wanted him to tell me that that could be done because there was something I wanted to, to be fixed, but there was never any stop. Charlie, where are we at? Or have you had an analysis with your mental health? Have you had any chats with psychotherapists? Or there was just nothing. It was, we can do this see you in the operating theatre. And so I did it. And then obviously within the first couple of weeks of doing it, something's not right here. This was not looking good. And I know that swelling and the aftermath of very invasive surgery, you've got to give it time. But I I remember thinking, no, when he took the cast off, my heart sunk and I panicked. Went on YouTube, went on Google and it was quite a common story. But my nostrils and the nose was just not aligned. It was asymmetric. So I started flagging it very quickly, but obviously I had to let it do its thing. We were allowed to wear masks, obviously, if we went out, because at the time we were still very COVID-driven, and I was thankful that I could wear masks. But um, it was within probably six to eight weeks that he even identified that this wasn't healing correct. And there started a whole other can of worms because I hadn't factored in the risks and what would happen if it didn't go to plan. There was no support around that. There was no tools around it. There was no no one in the team of this plastic surgeon that was going to be able to help me because once you've done something like that, there's no going back. And also, you can't do anything because you can't touch it for at least a year because it's too fragile. So then I'm stuck. And that's unfortunately when the shit really hit the fan with me because something, an insecurity had led me to something. I'd put all this expectation on something being the answer to everything. I'd spent a lot of money. I'd put a lot of emotional energy into it. I've obviously struggled with my self-esteem. I, by all accounts, was seen as quite an attractive guy. I sat there and I thought, what have I done? A spark went out. And that's when body dysmorphia, BDD, really raised its head in a sense of, oh, what is this condition? And that came to me via a therapist of mine, a friend, Dr. Pam Spur, who's amazing. She could see that I was in a very, very dark place because I've I've just done something beyond repair. I've I've messed my face up, which means that I, when I meet people, I I just well I won't want to meet people, and I'm not going to do my career anymore, and I'm I'm done. So, so you go home. I go um, home back to Leon C. I go back to sunny old Leon C, and I just recover. I took 
every weight off of my shoulder apart from just spending some time with my family, being with my nephews, getting joy out of the simpler things, forgetting social media, forgetting media world, forgetting personal training, knowing I can't exercise because for the first few months anyway, I was not allowed to. And start looking at life a little bit differently in a more simpler term and to try and understand what is it that I've been seeking? What is body dysmorphia? What can I do with this? Where do I go from here? And that's what this whole year has been about. And I keep referring to this reflective time. It's definitely been over a year now for sure. I'm looking at every angle. I'm piecing it together and I'm trying to understand what the triggers are, what they have been, the trauma of the past, the rejection element that I struggle with so much, the coming out later in life that I didn't realize actually was quite damaging to not have explored myself in a younger time, the reality TV world of the comparison angle, the bigorexia that I didn't realize that I had. I just thought it was perfectionism. But again, as I'm sitting there listing it all off, already that's a positive because I'm looking at it from a slightly different perspective now. And with having therapy and finally having the guts to talk about body dysmorphia, that was an opening of a a real healing part of this story was I spent a good eight months off radar pretty much. So then when a friend of mine who works in TV, who knew what I was going through behind the scenes, but not to what extent, she said, why don't you, when you're ready, talk about this? Because I think it could really help people. And people were wondering where I was, you know, and my agent as well. I, I was still saying no to all the jobs. No one could understand what, where I was and what I was doing. And uh, I thought, right, I haven't spoke about this. No one knows I've had surgery or anything like that. So this is the time. And I, I went on um, Steph's Pat Lunch. And that's when I spoke about everything. And I had the Body Dysmorphia Foundation, the BDDF, who are amazing. Um, help me and they've been a help with me ever since Dr Pam and with her contacts and team have been incredible with me and I've been able to use my platform in a totally different way in a way that I've never used it before to just be totally transparent and honest sharing it from a, a male perspective a gay male perspective a reality tv star perspective it's been a real cathartic experience and so it's taken that pressure off that I everything I do now, I know that I've kind of said where I'm at and the things that I've been through. There's no expectation to be anything. I don't need to be an Adonis. I don't need to act like I've got a great nose when I still am self-conscious of it. And the journey continues with that and trying to embark on, do I do the third surgery, which I've been recommended to do? I'm not there mentally to want to endure any of that again and the risks that come with that but what I do in a weird way enjoy doing now is sharing the story to potentially stop people making rushed or rash decisions when it comes to cosmetic surgery aesthetic surgery and to really question if their body image and things like that are affecting them and their confidence and how they socialize and interact with people or how they see themselves then we need to see where you're at with that. And if it's something you're connecting with, then maybe there is an issue here that needs to be addressed. 
And so that's been what this whole thing's about now, hence why I sit here, because I felt very guilty and embarrassed for how I felt, very self-obsessed, self-absorbed, all about me, me, me. People are out there struggling, life-threatening illnesses, although that guilt has been on my shoulders. But what I realise now is I'm allowed to be feeling the way I feel. This is my story. And if it can help someone down the line, then amazing. Like, you know, this might just make someone stop making that appointment with that plastic surgeon or before they do that, go and maybe get some therapy or speaking in parliament was an idea to say to the government, plastic surgery, aesthetic work, you know, from fillers to Botox can lead to extremities. There needs to be a duty of care around this because I had one thing that then has led to a much bigger thing because I wasn't equipped for it, truthfully. I didn't know. And it was so easily done and it can be so easily done for anyone. There needs to be conditions around this, you know? So that's what we're pushing for right now. And that's something that I'm really getting my teeth into and it it helps me. I just want to take a quick moment to say a big thank you to my wonderful sponsor, Bowdoin. Bowdoin is a British brand that has championed uplifting, eclectic British style since it was founded 31 years ago. Perhaps it's time to add to your collection this autumn with some new knitwear, maybe with a modern twist such as a puff sleeve. I've just indulged in a new ultra soft cashmere, which I can honestly tell you I'll be living in this winter. But what I love most about the brand is that they've always championed women from a variety of different backgrounds and seek to inspire them to enjoy a life well lived, which is exactly what I'm aiming to do with my podcast. Head to Bowden.com to check out their new autumn collection or to their Instagram at Bowden underscore clothing. So going back to your treatment for your BDD, what does that involve? Is it CBT based or? CBT, which I'm actually very new to. Mm -hmm. That was something that Pam recommended that I try. It's trying to understand this, the behavioral patterns, reconditioning the brain. The one thing about me, which I think this could be quite a successful route for me, is that I am very aware. I'm not in denial about anything and I see things for what they are and I piece it together with quite a clear mind. And if someone can guide me a little bit to potentially think of a certain angle or understand my triggers or just make me see things in a certain way, I usually can take it on board And I will know if I'm resonating with it or connecting with it. Acceptance is key with all of this. The work is always in progress. And that's vital to know. And the one thing that I've realized recently, especially in recent months, is this self-acceptance. This is who I am. This is the journey that I've been on. The things that have led to the things that have happened, I can't change. But equally, I know that for my future, I want to have more control over things. I'm not going to sit here and say I don't have BDD anymore, that I'm not going to be obsessive about certain things. That pressure is off because it's more than likely it will come back in different ways and show itself in certain ways of my life. And I'm cool with that. It's the acceptance. And now I'm accepting, I do feel that there's a 
there's a sigh of relief that I'm open to the imperfections. I'm open to the trauma that's got me here. And actually, I can move on and the future can be bright. And even though I'm going to be totally transparent, I don't feel ignited still as I sit here. I don't. It's like that lighter when you're like you're pressing it down to try and get the spark. I definitely have that thumb on the little bit of metal that's causing that friction to spark. Good analogy. I really like that. Yeah. There's that part of me that as long as I'm doing that and we're trying to spark, then that's great. I don't need to be a full ignited flame. And that's where where we're at with it. And having the support around me, and this is what we need to get more of for people, they understand that there is help out there. Hence, the Body Dysmorphic Disorder Foundation, a huge part of this for me, Mm. spreading what they're doing. CBT therapy, yes, it can work for people, but people need to understand the tools and the resources that are out there. And I think that's what we've got to continue to keep doing Time will tell, truthfully, but I'm in it to win it. And I'm just trying to use my experiences to now make something good from it. But in all of that waffle, it's it's the acceptance and people around me understanding it as well. And me being able to just be myself and taking that pressure off, that's that's been a really good thing for me recently. And what would you say to your younger self if you could go back in time? Do you think anything would have made a difference when you're that young boy? I obviously realize a lot of my childhood and maybe my lack of being able to really express myself for whatever reasons personal to me might have been a big part of that initial inadequacy feeling or nervousness to be my true self. So what I do, even just with my nephews now, from a a gay uncle perspective, is I always go on to my sister. You give those boys the freedom to just be themselves, express themselves, do what they want to do, in course in line, and make sure that they are aware that this world is full of complicated, beautiful individual people that they're going to encounter in life. And they're one of them. And just because we live in this nice little life down in Leon Sea, which everything is quite rosy, when they're in the thick of the real world, we don't know where their lives will take them. They've got to be armoured and prepared, non-judgmental, accepting, kind. And remember, we live in a world which is full of incredible human beings doing all different things and not one person's the same. So I didn't really have that. And I think that's because we're from yesteryear a little bit, you know, late 80s, 90s. Being called gay at school was the worst thing you could be called back in my day. I'm not sure it would hold that same power now. I hope it doesn't. Anything that associated you with the plague, HIV, AIDS, you know, that that was all around us. And so probably subconsciously over the years, I totally removed myself from any association with anything. But maybe if I was a kid growing up now and I had this freedom to really have been myself, that maybe I wouldn't have struggled so much through the school years that then potentially led me to the other struggles that I had years down the line. But this is the journey. This, this is, is my story. This so. is the journey. And to finish, I just want to ask, what are your bottom line behaviours now each day? I mean, what are your absolute essentials that you do on a daily basis to ground you or to make you feel good? What would you say are your 
your top five? The fundamentals for me, which firstly, I've started really enjoying exercise again for the first time in two years. I'm doing a fitness program. It's not my own. It's someone else's that I've purchased. It's a one hour session, four times a week. The reason why I'm doing that is because it's a test to A, what does this program bring me? Because I've not done it before. And B, can I build a healthier relationship? My stop clock goes on. It's one hour. We're job done. I walk out. I've been doing that for six weeks. Habitually, it's working and I'm enjoying it. So that's a real positive because exercise was my thing. And I was gutted that it wasn't my thing anymore for whatever reasons I've said. So that's important for me. I need that release and I love it. Nutrition, it's for me, it's so important. Like if I don't start the day on a good breakfast, weirdly, it kind of spirals. I need my porridge and I need my bits and pieces that make that porridge amazing. That really makes me happy. If I've had a good nutritious breakfast, I feel set up for the day. I like having my water, my lemon water, and I get a little enjoyment out of just sipping that during the day. Sleep. I set myself, I do not go on my phone after, let's say, half past 10. Give myself a good window before I actually close my eyes and go to sleep. And that really helps. And with the phone and with the social medias now, in light of everything that's happened for me and the pressures that I felt with it, I just don't post if I don't want to anymore. I don't care if the algorithm's out or I'm told, well, you're not going to get that endorsement because your stats are crap. I don't care. Like If they don't want me, they don't want me. And that in itself has been a bit of a game changer because I forgot what this was all about. Going back to the thing of the things that were meant to be quite enjoyable at the beginning have turned into like mean machines, like horrible things that have caused toxicity. And I don't want that. I want to enjoy the gym. I want to enjoy my life. I just love social media and having a bit of a laugh with it. It's, it all became too much. So I'm just doing the things that work for me now. And that seems to really work. And also just choose my company wisely. That That's really important for me. If you don't get me or you think, oh, Charlie, you're not going on about things again. But Charlie, you're a good looking guy. and it's, You're missing the point. Go away. Honestly, it's nothing personal. I've cut out some very, very important people, I'd say, in my life recently. And it's nothing personal. It really isn't. It's more that unfortunately, for where I'm at right now, for what I'm trying to do, I just need to be around the people that let me be without questioning or triggering. That's also been a game changer. I know that some people are upset with me and I have to sleep on that. But when the time is right, and if they're genuinely meant for you later on down the line, this period where we're not talking, you'll understand. Yeah, I completely resonate with that. I think it's a really beautiful realisation to have, actually, because it's a very, very powerful one. It's powerful. And I think when we still get our moments of doubt, or we, we know we're having a bit of a bad day or we get into our own heads. You have to remember the progress and the awareness that you've made and the decisions that you've made and those small wins. And I think that if you can do that, it goes back to those quick fire things. When I have my little moments and I still, I get them on the weekly, I will address everything. Okay, well, you know, I've done X, Y, Z and I'm good with that. So it all goes back to that acceptance and, and that's it really. If you accept it, then you've got the power in your hands. Charlie, it's been such an incredible, enlightening, moving conversation. I can't thank you enough for coming. No, thank you. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hurt to Healing podcast. I'd love for you to subscribe to the show or to follow me on our Hurt to Healing Instagram at Hurt to Healing Pod. You might also have a friend or family member that you think might benefit from hearing this conversation. So please spread the word. Hurt to Healing has partnered with Brown Advisory to bring you this podcast. Brown Advisory, a global investment management firm, is passionate about raising awareness of mental health challenges in order to help people thrive in an ever-changing world. A big thank you to Brown Advisory for supporting my mission. Mm-hmm.